Chapter One of Fighting France. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Fighting France from Dunkirk to Belfort by Edith Wharton. Chapter One The Look of Paris, August nineteen fourteen to February nineteen fifteen. One, August. On the thirtieth of July, nineteen fourteen, motoring north from Poitiers, we had lunched somewhere by the roadside under apple trees on the edge of a field. Other fields stretched away on our right and left to a border of a woodland and a village steeple. All around was noonday quiet, and the sober, disciplined landscape which the traveller's memory is apt to evoke as distinctively French. Sometimes, even to accustomed eyes, these ruled-off fields and compact grey villages seem merely flat and tame. At other moments, the sensitive imagination sees in every thrifty sod and even furrow the ceaseless vigilant attachment of generations faithful to the soil. The particular bit of landscape before us spoke in all its lines of that attachment. The air seemed full of the long murmur of human effort, the rhythm of oft-repeated tasks, the serenity of the scene smiled away the war rumours which had hung on us since morning. All day the sky had been banked with thunder-clouds, but by the time we reached Chartres, towards four o'clock, they had rolled away under the horizon, and the town was so saturated with sunlight that to pass into the cathedral was like entering the dense obscurity of a church in Spain. At first all detail was imperceptible, we were in a hollow night. Then, as the shadows gradually thinned and gathered themselves up into pier and vault and ribbing, there burst out of them great sheets and showers of colour. Framed by such depths of darkness, and steeped in a blaze of midsummer sun, the familiar windows seemed singularly remote, and yet overpoweringly vivid. Now they widened into dark-shored pools splashed with sunset, now glittered and menaced like the shields of fighting angels. Some were cataracts of sapphires, others roses dropped from a saint's tunic, others great carven platters strewn with heavenly regalia, others the sails of galleons bound for the purple islands, and in the western wall the scattered fires of the rose window hung like a constellation in an African night. When one dropped one's eyes from these ethereal harmonies, the dark masses of masonry below them, all veiled and muffled in a mist pricked by a few altar-lights, seemed to symbolize the life on earth with its shadows, its heavy distances, and its little islands of illusion. All that a great cathedral can be, all the meanings it can express, all the tranquillizing power it can breathe upon the soul, all the richness of detail it can fuse into a large utterance of strength and beauty, the cathedral of Chartres gave us in that perfect hour. It was sunset when we reached the gates of Paris. Under the heights of St. Cloud and Seren, the reaches of the Seine trembled with the blue-pink lustre of an early Monet. The bois lay about us in the stillness of a holiday evening, and the lawns of Bagatelle were as fresh as June. Below the Arc de Triomphe the Champs-Élysées sloped downward in a sun-powdered haze to the mist of fountains and the ethereal obelisk, and the currents of summer life ebbed and flowed with a normal beat under the trees of the radiating avenues. The great city, so made for peace and art and all humanest graces, seemed to lie by her riverside like a princess guarded by the watchful giant of the Eiffel Tower. The next day the air was thundery with rumours. Nobody believed them, everybody repeated them. War? Of course there couldn't be war. 
The cabinets, like naughty children, were again dangling their feet over the edge, but the whole incalculable weight of things as they were, of the daily necessary business of living, continued calmly and convincingly to assert itself against the bandying of diplomatic words. Paris went on steadily about her midsummer business of feeding, dressing, and amusing the great army of tourists, who were the only invaders she had seen for nearly half a century. All the while every one knew that other work was going on also. The whole fabric of the country's seemingly undisturbed routine was threaded with noiseless invisible currents of preparation. The sense of them was in the calm air as the sense of changing weather is in the balminess of a perfect afternoon. Paris counted the minutes till the evening papers came. They said little or nothing except what every one was already declaring all over the country. We don't want war, mais il faut que cela finisse. This kind of thing has got to stop, that was the only phrase one heard. If diplomacy could still arrest the war, so much the better, no one in France wanted it. All who spent the first days of August in Paris will testify to the agreement of feeling on that point. But if war had to come, the country and every heart in it was ready. At the dressmakers the next morning the tired fitters were preparing to leave for their usual holiday. They looked pale and anxious. Decidedly there was a new weight of apprehension in the air. And in the Rue Royale, at the corner of the Place de la Concorde, a few people had stopped to look at a little strip of white paper against the wall of the Ministère de la Marine. General mobilization, they read, and an armed nation knows what that means. But the group about the paper was small and quiet. Passers-by read the notice and went on. There were no cheers, no gesticulations. The dramatic sense of the race had already told them that the event was too great to be dramatized. Like a monstrous landslide, it had fallen across the path of an orderly, laborious nation, disrupting its routine, annihilating its industries, rending families apart, and burying under a heap of senseless ruin the patiently and painfully wrought machinery of civilization. That evening, in a restaurant of the Rue Royale, we sat at a table in one of the open windows, abreast with the street, and saw the strange new crowds stream by. In an instant we were being shown what mobilization was, a huge break in the normal flow of traffic, like the sudden rupture of a dike. The street was flooded by the torrent of people sweeping past us to the various railway stations. All were on foot and carrying their luggage, for since dawn every cab and taxi and motor omnibus had disappeared. The war office had thrown out its dragnet and caught them all in. The crowd that passed our window was chiefly composed of conscripts, the mobilisables of the first day, who were on the way to the station accompanied by their families and friends. But among them were little clusters of bewildered tourists, labouring along with bags and bundles, and watching their luggage pushed before them on hand-carts, puzzled inarticulate waifs caught in the cross-tides racing to a maelstrom. In the restaurant, the befrogged and red-coated band poured out patriotic music, and the intervals between the courses that so few waiters were left to serve were broken by the ever-recurring obligation to stand up for the Marseillaise, to stand up for God Save the King, to stand up for the Russian national anthem, to stand up again for the Marseillaise. Et dire que ce sont des anguilles qui jouent tout cela, a humorist remarked from the pavement. As the evening wore on and the crowd about our window thickened, the loiterers outside began to join in the war song. Allons, début! and the loyal round begins again. La chanson du départ is a frequent demand, and the chorus of spectators chimes in roundly. A sort of quiet humour was the note of the street. Down the Rue Royale, toward the Madeleine, the bands of other restaurants were attracting other throngs, and martial refrains were strung along the boulevard like its garland of arc-lights. 
It was a night of singing and acclamations, not boisterous, but gallant and determined. It was Paris Baudaudry at its best. Meanwhile, beyond the fringe of idlers, the steady stream of conscripts still poured along. Wives and families trudged beside them, carrying all kinds of odd improvised bags and bundles. The impression disengaging itself from all this superficial confusion was that of a cheerful steadiness of spirit. The faces ceaselessly streaming by were serious but not sad, nor was there any air of bewilderment, the stare of driven cattle. All these lads and young men seemed to know what they were about and why they were about it. The youngest of them looked suddenly grown up and responsible. They understood their stake in the job, and accepted it. The next day the army of midsummer travel was immobilized to let the other army move. No more wild rushes to the station, no more bribing of concierges, vain quests for invisible cabs, haggard hours of waiting in the queue at Cook's. No train stirred except to carry soldiers, and the civilians who had not bribed and jammed their way unto a cranny of the thronged carriages leaving the first night, could only creep back through the hot streets to their hotel and wait. Back they went disappointed yet half-relieved, to the resounding emptiness of porterless halls, waiterless restaurants, motionless lifts, to the queer, disjointed life of fashionable hotels, suddenly reduced to the intimacies and makeshift of a Latin quarter pension. Meanwhile it was strange to watch the gradual paralysis of the city. As the motors, taxis, cabs, and vans had vanished from the streets, so the lively little steamers had left the Seine. The canal boats too were gone, or lay motionless. Loading and unloading had ceased. Every great architectural opening framed an emptiness. All the endless avenues stretched away to desert distances. In the parks and gardens no one raked the paths or trimmed the borders. The fountains slept in their basins, the worried sparrows fluttered unfed, and vague dogs, shaken out of their daily habits, roamed unquietly, looking for familiar eyes. Paris, so intensely conscious, yet so strangely entranced, seemed to have had curare injected into all her veins. The next day, the 2nd of August, from the terrace of the Hôtel de Crillon, one looked down on a first faint stir of returning life. Now and then a taxi-cab or a private motor crossed the Place de la Concorde, carrying soldiers to the stations. Other conscripts, in detachments, tramped by on foot with bags and banners. One detachment stopped before the black-veiled statue of Strasbourg and laid a garland at her feet. In ordinary times this demonstration would at once have attracted a crowd, but at the very moment when it might have been expected to provoke a patriotic outburst, it excited no more attention than if one of the soldiers had turned aside to give a penny to a beggar. The people crossing the square did not even stop to look. The meaning of this apparent indifference was obvious. When an armed nation mobilizes, everybody is busy, and busy in a definite and pressing way. It is not only the fighters that mobilize those who stay behind must do the same. For each French household, for each individual man or woman in France, war means a complete reorganization of life. The detachment of conscripts, unnoticed, paid their tribute to the cause, and passed on. Looked back on from these sterner months, those early days in Paris, in their setting of grave architecture and summer skies, where the light of the ideal and the abstract the sudden flaming up of national life, the abeyance of every small and mean preoccupation, cleared the moral air as the streets had been cleared, and made the spectator feel as though he were reading a great poem on war rather than facing its realities. Something of this sense of exaltation seemed to penetrate the throngs who streamed up and down the boulevards till late into the night. 
All wheeled traffic had ceased, except that of the rare taxicabs impressed to carry conscripts to the stations, and the middle of the boulevard was as thronged with foot-passengers as an Italian market-place on a Sunday morning. The vast tide swayed up and down at a slow pace, breaking now and then to make room for one of the volunteer legions which were forming at every corner, Italian, Romanian, South American, North American, each headed by its national flag and hailed with cheering as it passed. But even the cheers were sober. Paris was not to be shaken out of her self-imposed serenity. One felt something nobly conscious and voluntary in the mood of this quiet multitude. Yet it was a mixed throng, made up of every class, from the scum of the exterior boulevards to the cream of the fashionable restaurants. These people, only two days ago, had been leading a thousand different lives, in indifference or in antagonism to each other, as alien as enemies across a frontier. Now workers and idlers, thieves, beggars, saints, poets, drabs and sharpers, genuine people and showy shams, were all bumping up against each other in an instinctive community of emotion. The people, luckily, predominated. The faces of workers looked best in such a crowd, and there were thousands of them, each illuminated and singled out by its magnesium flash of passion. I remember especially the steady-browed faces of the women, and also the small but significant fact that every one of them had remembered to bring her dog. The biggest of these amiable companions had to take their chance of seeing what they could through the forest of human legs, but every one that was portable was snugly lodged in the bend of an elbow, and from this safe perch scores and scores of small serious muzzles, blunt or sharp, smooth or woolly, brown or grey or white or black or brindled, looked out on the scene with the quiet awareness of the Paris dog. It was certainly a good sign that they had not been forgotten that night. 2. We had been shown, impressively, what it was to live through a mobilization. Now we were to learn that mobilization is only one of the concomitants of martial law, and that martial law is not comfortable to live under, at least till one gets used to it. At first its main purpose, to the neutral civilian, seemed certainly to be the wayward pleasure of complicating his life, and in that line it excelled in the last refinements of ingenuity. Instructions began to shower on us after the lull of the first days, instructions as to what to do and what not to do, in order to make our presence tolerable and our persons secure. In the first place, foreigners could not remain in France without satisfying the authorities as to their nationality and antecedents, and to do this necessitated repeated ineffective visits to chancery, consulates, and police station, each too densely thronged with flustered applicants to permit the entrance of one more. Between these vain pilgrimages the traveller, impatient to leave, had to toil on foot to distant railway stations, from which he returned baffled by vague answers and disheartened by the declaration that tickets, when achievable, must also be vise by the police. There was a moment when it seemed that one's inmost thoughts had to have that unobtainable visa, to obtain which, more fruitless hours, must be lived on grimy stairways between perspiring layers of fellow-aliens. Meanwhile one's money was probably running short, and one must cable or telegraph for more. Ah, but cables and telegrams must be vis too, and even when they were, one got no guarantee that they would be sent. Then one could not use code addresses, and the ridiculous number of words contained in a New York address seemed to multiply as the francs in one's pockets diminished. And when the cable was finally dispatched, it was either lost on the way, or reached its destination only to call forth, after anxious days, the disheartening response, impossible at present, making every effort. 
It is fair to add that, tedious and even irritating as many of these transactions were, they were greatly eased by the sudden uniform good-nature of the French functionary, who, for the first time, probably, in the long tradition of his line, broke through its fundamental rule, and was kind. Luckily, too, these incessant comings and goings involved much walking of the beautiful idle summer streets, which grew idler and more beautiful each day. Never had such blue-gray softness of afternoon brooded over Paris, such sunsets turned the heights of the Trocadero into Dido's Carthage, never above all so rich a moon ripened through such perfect evenings. The Seine itself had no small share in this mysterious increase of the city's beauty. Released from all traffic, its hurried ripples smoothed themselves into long silken reaches in which quays and monuments at last saw their unbroken images. At night the firefly lights of the boats had vanished, and the reflections of the street-lamps were lengthened into streamers of red and gold and purple that slept on the calm current like fluted water-weeds. Then the moon rose and took possession of the city, purifying it of all accidents, calming and enlarging it and giving it back its ideal lines of strength and repose. There was something strangely moving in this new Paris of the August evenings, so exposed, yet so serene, as though her very beauty shielded her. So gradually we fell into the habit of living under martial law. After the first days of flustered adjustment, the personal inconveniences were so few that one felt almost ashamed of there not being more, of not being called on to contribute some greater sacrifice of comfort to the cause. Within the first week over two-thirds of the shops had closed, the greater number bearing on their shuttered windows the notice, pour cause de mobilisation, which showed that the patron and staff were at the front. But enough remained open to satisfy every ordinary want, and the closing of the others served to prove how much one could do without. Provisions were as cheap and plentiful as ever, though for a while it was easier to buy food than to have it cooked. The restaurants were closing rapidly, and one often had to wander a long way for a meal, and wait a longer time to get it. A few hotels still carried on a halting life, galvanized by an occasional inrush of travel from Belgium and Germany, but most of them had closed or were being hastily transformed into hospitals. The signs over these hotel doors first disturbed the dreaming harmony of Paris. In a night, as it seemed, the whole city was hung with red crosses. Every other building showed the red and white band across its front, with ouvoir or hôpital beneath. There was something sinister in these preparations for horrors in which one could not yet believe, in the making of bandages for limbs yet sound and whole, the spreading of pillows for heads yet carried high. But insist as they would on the woe to come, these warning signs did not deeply stir the trance of Paris. The first days of the war were full of a kind of unrealizing confidence, not boastful or fatuous, yet as different as possible from the clear-headed tenacity of purpose that the experience of the next few months was to develop. It is hard to evoke, without seeming to exaggerate it, the mood of early August, the assurance, the balance, the kind of smiling fatalism with which Paris moved to her task. It is not impossible that the beauty of the season and the silence of the city may have helped to produce this mood. War, the shrieking fury, had announced herself by a great wave of stillness. Never was desert hush more complete. The silence of a street is always so much deeper than the silence of wood or field. The heaviness of the August air intensified this impression of suspended life. The days were dumb enough, but at night the hush became acute. In the quarter I inhabit, always deserted in summer, the shuttered streets were mute as catacombs, and the faintest pinprick of noise seemed to tear a rent in a black pall of silence. 
I could hear the tired tap of a lame hoof half a mile away, and the tread of the policeman guarding the embassy across the street beat against the pavement like a series of detonations. Even the variegated noises of the city's waking up had ceased. If any sweepers, scavengers, or rag-pickers still plied their trades, they did it as secretly as ghosts. I remember one morning being roused out of a deep sleep by a sudden explosion of noise in my room. I sat up with a start, and found I had been waked by a low-voiced exchange of bonjour in the street. Another fact that kept the reality of war from Paris was the curious absence of troops in the streets. After the first rush of conscripts hurrying to their military bases, it might have been imagined that the reign of peace had set in. While smaller cities were swarming with soldiers no glitter of arms was reflected in the empty avenues of the capital, no military music sounded through them. Paris scorned all show of war, and fed the patriotism of her children on the mere sight of her beauty. It was enough. Even when the news of the first ephemeral successes in Alsace began to come in, the Parisians did not swerve from their even gait. The newsboys did all the shouting, and even theirs was presently silenced by decree. It seemed as though it had been unanimously, instinctively decided that the Paris of 1914 should in no respect resemble the Paris of 1870, and as though this resolution had passed at birth into the blood of millions born since that fatal date, and ignorant of its bitter lesson. The unanimity of self-restraint was the notable characteristic of this people suddenly plunged into an unsought and unexpected war. At first their steadiness of spirit might have passed for the bewilderment of a generation born and bred in peace, which did not yet understand what war implied. But it is precisely on such a mood that easy triumphs might have been supposed to have the most disturbing effect. It was the crowd in the street that shouted, A Berlin! in 1870. Now the crowd in the street continued to mind its own business, in spite of showers of extras and too sanguine bulletins. I remember the morning when our butcher's boy brought the news that the first German flag had been hung out on the balcony of the Ministry of War. Now, I thought, the Latin will boil over. And I wanted to be there to see it. I hurried down the quiet Rue de Martignac, turned the corner of the Place Sainte Clotilde, and came on an orderly crowd filling the street before the Ministry of War. The crowd was so orderly that the few pacific gestures of the police easily cleared away for passing cabs, and for the military motors perpetually dashing up. It was composed of all classes, and there were many family groups, with little boys straddling their mothers' shoulders, or lifted up by the policemen when they were too heavy for their mothers. It is safe to say that there was hardly a man or woman of that crowd who had not a soldier at the front, and there before them hung the enemy's first flag—a splendid silk flag, white and black and crimson, and embroidered with gold. It was the flag of an Alsatian regiment, a regiment of Prussianized Alsace. It symbolized all they most abhorred in the whole abhorrent job that lay ahead of them. It symbolized also their finest ardor and their noblest hate. And the reason why, if every other reason failed, France could never lay down arms till the last of such flags was low. And there they stood and looked at it, not dully or uncomprehendingly, but consciously, advisedly, and in silence, as if already foreseeing all it would cost to keep that flag and add to it others like it foreseeing the cost, and accepting it. There seemed to be men's hearts even in the children of that crowd, and in the mothers whose weak arms held them up. So they gazed and went on, and made way for others like them, who gazed in their turn, and went on too. All day the crowd renewed itself, and it was always the same crowd, intent and understanding and silent, who looked steadily at the flag, and knew what its being there meant. That, in August, was the look of Paris. 3. 
February. February dusk on the Seine. The boats are plying again, but they stop at nightfall, and the river is inky smooth, with the same long weed-like reflections as in August. Only the reflections are fewer and paler. Bright lights are muffled everywhere. The line of the quays is scarcely discernible, and the heights of the Trocadero are lost in the blur of night, which presently effaces even the firm tower-tops of Notre-Dame. Down the damp pavements only a few street-lamps throw their watery zigzags. The shops are shut, and the windows above them thickly curtained. The faces of the houses are all blind. In the narrow streets of the Rive Gauche the darkness is even deeper, and the few scattered lights in courts or cités create effects of Paranesi like mystery. The gleam of the chestnut-roaster's brazier at a street-corner deepens the sense of an old adventurous Italy, and the darkness beyond seems full of cloaks and conspiracies. I turn on my way home, into an empty street between high garden walls, with a single light showing far off at its farther end. Not a soul is in sight between me and that light, my steps echo endlessly in the silence. Presently a dim figure comes around the corner ahead of me, man or woman, impossible to tell till I overtake it. The February fog deepens the darkness, and the faces one passes are indistinguishable. As for the numbers of the houses, no one thinks of looking for them. If you know the quarter you count doors from the corner, or try to puzzle out the familiar outline of a balcony or a pediment. If you are in a strange street, you must ask at the nearest tobacconist's. For as for finding a policeman, a yard off you couldn't tell him from your grandmother. Such, after six months of war, are the nights of Paris. The days are less remarkable, and less romantic. Almost all the early flush and shiver of romance is gone, or so at least it seems to those who have watched the gradual revival of life. It may appear otherwise to observers from other countries, even from those involved in the war. After London, with all her theatres open, and her machinery of amusement almost unimpaired, Paris no doubt seems like a city on whom great issues weigh. But to those who lived through that first sunlit silent month, the streets to-day show an almost normal activity. The vanishing of all the motor-buses, and of the huge lumbering commercial vans, leaves many a forgotten perspective open, and reveals many a lost grace of architecture. But the taxicabs and private motors are almost as abundant as in peacetime, and the peril of pedestrianism is kept at its normal pitch by the incessant dashing to and fro of those unrivalled engines of destruction, the hospital and war-office motors. Many shops have reopened, a few theatres are tentatively producing patriotic drama or mixed programmes seasonal with sentiment and mirth, and the cinema again unrolls its eventful kilometres. For a while in September and October the streets were made picturesque by the coming and going of English soldiery and the aggressive flourish of British military motors. Then the fresh faces and smart uniforms disappeared, and now the nearest approach to militarism which Paris offers to the casual sightseer is the occasional drilling of a handful of pew-pew on the muddy reaches of the Place des Invalides. But there is another army in Paris. Its first detachments came months ago, in the dark September days lamentable rear-guard of the Allies' retreat on Paris. Since then its numbers have grown and grown, its dingy streams have percolated through all currents of Paris life, so that wherever one goes, in every quarter and at every hour, among the busy, confident, strongly-stepping Parisians, one sees these other people, dazed and slowly moving, men and women with sordid bundles on their backs, shuffling along hesitatingly in their tattered shoes, children dragging at their hands and tired-out babies pressed against their shoulders, the great army of the refugees. 
Their faces are unmistakable and unforgettable. No one who has ever caught that stare of dumb bewilderment, or that other look of concentrated horror, full of the reflection of flames and ruins, can shake off the obsession of the refugees. The look in their eyes is part of the look of Paris. It is the dark shadow on the brightness of the face she turns to the enemy. These poor people cannot look across the borders to eventual triumph. They belong mostly to a class whose knowledge of the world's affairs is measured by the shadow of their village steeple. They are no more curious of the laws of causation than the thousands overwhelmed at Avezzano. They were ploughing and sowing, spinning and weaving and minding their business, when suddenly a great darkness full of fire and blood came down on them. And now, here they are, in a strange country, among unfamiliar faces and new ways, with nothing left to them in the world but the memory of burning homes and massacred children and young men dragged to slavery, of infants torn from their mothers, old men trampled by drunken heels, and priests slain while they prayed beside the dying. These are the people who stand in hundreds every day outside the doors of the shelters improvised to rescue them, and who receive, in return for the loss of everything that makes life sweet or intelligible, or at least endurable, a cot in a dormitory, a meal-ticket, and perhaps, on lucky days, a pair of shoes. What are the Parisians doing, meanwhile? For one thing, and the sign is a good one, they are refilling the shops, and especially, of course, the great department stores. In the early war days there was no stranger sight than those deserted palaces, where one strayed between miles of unpurchased wares in quest of vanished salesmen. A few clerks, of course, were left, enough, one would have thought, for the rare purchasers who disturbed their meditations. But the few there were did not care to be disturbed. They lurked behind their walls of sheeting, their bastions of flannelette, as if ashamed to be discovered. And when one had coaxed them out they went through the necessary gestures automatically, as if mournfully wondering that any one should care to buy. I remember once at the Louvre seeing the whole force of a department, including the salesmen I was trying to cajole into showing me some medicated gauze, desert their posts simultaneously to gather about a motorcyclist in a muddy uniform who had dropped in to see his pals with tails from the front. But after six months the pressure of normal appetites has begun to reassert itself, and to shop is one of the normal appetites of woman. I say shop, instead of buy, to distinguish between the dull purchase of necessities and the voluptuousness of acquiring things one might do without. It is evident that many of the thousands now fighting their way into the great shops must be indulging in the latter delight. At a moment when real wants are reduced to a minimum, how else account for the congestion of the department store? Even allowing for the immense, the perpetual buying of supplies for hospitals and workrooms, the incessant stoking up of the innumerable centres of charitable production, there is no explanation of the crowding of the other departments, except the fact that woman, however valiant, however tried, however suffering and however self-denying, must eventually in the long run, and at whatever cost to her pocket and her ideals, begin to shop again. She has renounced the theatre, she denies herself the tea-rooms, she goes apologetically and furtively, and economically, to concerts, but the swinging doors of the department stores suck her irresistibly into their quicksand of remnants and reductions. No one in this respect would wish the look of Paris to be changed. It is a good sign to see the crowds pouring into the shops again, even though the sight is less interesting than that of the other crowds streaming daily, and on Sunday in immensely augmented numbers, across the Pont Alexandre III to the great court of the Invalides, where the German trophies are displayed. Here the heart of France beats with a richer blood, 
and something of its glow passes into foreign veins as one watches the perpetually renewed throngs face to face with the long triple row of German guns. There are few in those throngs to whom one of the deadly pack has not dealt a blow. There are personal losses, lacerating memories, bound up with the sight of all those evil engines. But personal sorrow is the sentiment least visible in the look of Paris. It is not fanciful to say that the Parisian face, after six months of trial, has acquired a new character. The change seems to have affected the very stuff it is moulded of, as though the long ordeal had hardened the poor human clay into some dense commemorative substance. I often pass in the street women whose faces look like memorial medals, idealized images of what they were in the flesh. And the masks of some of the men, those queer, tormented, Gallic masks, crushed in and squat and a little satyr-like, look like the bronzes of the Naples Museum, burnt and twisted from their baptism of fire. But none of these faces reveals a personal preoccupation. They are looking, one and all, at France erect on her borders. Even the women who are comparing different widths of Valenciennes at the lace-counter all have something of that vision in their eyes, or else one does not see the ones who haven't. It is still true of Paris that she has not the air of a capital in arms. There are as few troops to be seen as ever, and but for the coming and going of the orderlies attached to the war office and the military government, and the sprinkling of uniforms about the doors of barracks, there would be no sign of war in the streets. No sign, that is, except the presence of the wounded. It is only lately that they have begun to appear, for in the early months of the war they were not sent to Paris, and the splendidly appointed hospitals of the capital stood almost empty, while others, all over the country, were overcrowded. The motives for the disposal of the wounded have been much speculated upon and variously explained. One of its results may have been the maintaining in Paris of the extraordinary moral health which has given its tone to the whole country, and which is now sound and strong enough to face the sight of any misery. And miseries enough it has to face. Day by day the limping figures grow more numerous on the pavement, the pale bandaged heads more frequent in passing carriages. In the stalls at the theatres and concerts there are many uniforms and their wearers usually have to wait till the hall is emptied before they hobble out on a supporting arm. Most of them are very young, and it is the expression of their faces which I should like to picture and interpret as being the very essence of what I have called the look of Paris. They are grave, these young faces. One hears a great deal of the gaiety in the trenches, but the wounded are not gay. Neither are they sad, however. They are calm, meditative, strangely purified and matured. It is as though their great experience had purged them of pettiness, meanness, and frivolity, burning them down to the bare bones of character, the fundamental substance of the soul, and shaping that substance into something so strong and finely tempered, that for a long time to come, Paris will not care to wear any look unworthy of the look on their faces. End of chapter 1